Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I got home last night and I had a package on my doorstep and it was from Green Chef, who are my sponsors for this series. I was absolutely blown away with what was inside. Not only did they have the step-by-step recipe cards in there, but they had all the ingredients and as fresh as you can get them. Last night, I cooked the duck in balsamic glaze, which I'd never tried before. These pre-portioned ingredients allowed me to try this new flavour completely risk-free And I was able to eat the exact right amount of these ingredients. Not only that, but they had tender stem broccoli. How many other food boxes send tender stem broccoli? It was unbelievably delicious and I can't recommend it enough. Their high quality, fresh seasonal ingredients just blew me away. And it's allowed me to eat consistently and have a routine whilst eating healthily. So get 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with the code GREENSTRONG. That's GREENSTRONG for 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes. Welcome to another episode of Headstrong Season 7. My name is Louis Strong and I am the host of this podcast. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a number of individuals in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers and their experiences to understand what the word headstrong means to them. And to me, it means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. Joining me on this episode of Headstrong is former Love Island contestant Sharon Gafka. I spoke to Sharon about her experience on the show and indeed what fame is like and how she has tackled social media and the woes that come with it. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. Okay, awesome. Sharon, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. How's it going? It's been good. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you for asking. We were just, uh, before we were recording, having a chat about Christmas and the stresses of adulthood. Do you feel like adulthood's really hit you on the head now? Uh, do you know what? I feel like it hit me on the head a, a long time ago, but I think now I'm, I'm having to accept it more than I did before. I feel like I could just p- pie it off a little bit and play it down, but yeah, it's fully on, feel like a train right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're on the move. So, uh, th- as we were saying, this podcast is rooted in mental health, and... I kind of wanted you to come on because I feel like that you've got quite a lot to say in that kind of capacity on on various things from your background, your strong background in business, um, your stint on Love Island and then your experiences with that and kind of what, what you do now as well as an ambassador for various things. So to start at the very beginning, when I was doing the prep for this episode, I was reading about beauty pageants. Now, <laughs> forgive me for my lack of knowledge on beauty pageants. It's not my area of expertise, so I wouldn't be doing that <laughs> on Mastermind. Can you fill me in? Well, how does, um, what takes place at a beauty pageant? How old were you? How old do you have to be to enter these kind of things as well? Um, so I think in terms of like age, it can pretty much be any age. Um, it very much depends on the competition. So I started when I was, I think I was 14, 15. Um, I mean, again, it depends on what competition you enter, but all the ones I've entered is very much focused on community work, um, self-development, charity aspect as well. So all of the pageants I've kind of worked with um, have been fundraising for young children hospices, um, anything relating to um, to cancer. So the Christie up in Manchester. Um, so it's a lot of emphasis on that and a lot of emphasis on self-development and the interview tending, like, so it's an interview round that tended to be the heaviest portion of the competition. So your ability to speak, how you hold yourself in a conversation, how you can deal with pressure, basically, because um, a lot of the pageants I've entered, it's about a more of an ambassadorship role. Mm. Um, especially when I won Miss International UK going to Japan, it's how you can hold yourself in a tough situation like an international competition obviously there's the on-stage proportions like the swimwear and the gowns and all of that stuff and that tends to be where everyone focuses their attention when they think about beauty pageants it's the swimwear and the gowns but um yeah it's uh it's, it's an interesting hobby i think do you think they're portrayed in the in a wrong in the wrong way then yes definitely i mean i do understand where the misconception comes from i do find that in britain most of the misconception about beauty pageants is from programs like honey boo boo child um you know the young glitz pageants i personally don't agree with glitz pageants because they are very in my mind superficial where um young girls are wearing like clip-in veneers or fake hair or whatever um but in terms of pageants i've done as a, a young woman as a teenager they're very much focused on what the community can do for young women um, and painting teenagers in a good light. So I remember entering Miss Teen Great Britain in 2013 um, and the director started it up because teenagers were getting bad backlash from media for being jobs, for being antisocial, where she wanted to give teenagers a really good area to like kind of take a step back from that and have a good positive impact on their community. So yeah, I think it very much varies, but I think, you know, people that have negative opinions on it that don't want to look at the positives of what a beauty pageant can do for somebody. Yeah, it sounds like that they can be an opportunity to um, represent the community almost and show what you can do within the community, which it sounds like a really beneficial thing. So going from that then, you talk about the interview. What kind of questions would be asked in an interview? 
Um, I mean, it very much varies. <laughs> um, it very much varies on age. I do feel like when they believe that you're a strong contender to take the competition, the questions get harder. Oh, really? So I remember. I I don't remember exactly the questions, but I remember my last pageant interview being very very tough. Um, I remember um, the director of the pageant asking me, you know, oh, because you have a really good job and a really good career, why do you want to waste your time doing beauty pageants? And I remember sitting there being like, wow, okay, like this woman's really testing, <laughs> testing the water with me. Um, and she really tested my like opinion on beauty pageants and why I was there and what my purpose of my life is. Um, so yeah, I remember leaving, even though it was like five minutes, I remember it being like one of the hardest five minutes of my life. So job interviews sound like a piece of cake to you then? Oh yeah, I, do you know what actually, I do find that job interviews, I feel come easier to me now as years of beauty pageant interview experience have happened. Mm. I really, I really enjoy a job interview. I think it's a great time. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand people who get really nervous about them because that person probably wants you to succeed. They don't want to watch you flop or fall or fail in that role. So you've just got to accept that even if there's another, however many people going up for it, you know, it's, it's not a failure. You've done well enough that they want you to interview, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. And for me, it's always been a bit more of a conversation as opposed to, I think of it as a conversation as, as opposed to an interview. Well, 100%. So can you remember the first job that you had when you were younger? Oh, uh, okay. So the first actual job I had when I was younger, um, so obviously I did the paper rounds and stuff like that. Um, I worked at McDonald's as my first, my first job. <laughs> did you? Um, yeah, I mean, do you know what? It was really funny leaving the villa. It was one of those, uh, one of those stories that came out about me that um, made the sun. And I was like, why is that? Like, why is that story? I never pretended that I didn't work there. Like, it's part of my life. It's part of my journey. Yeah, I spent the first year of my career in working in my local McDonald's. So you know all the trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> something like that. I think it actually yeah. was at the same time the horse meat scandal came out. So oh, people God. were asking me about um, what the what the meat was was, and I was like, oh, do you know what? I think McDonald's is probably one of the few places where it's actually what it says on the tin. Like it's okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, how did your McDonald's career then transition further on, further on, and then I, I, I don't know how many years later it was where you, you're finding yourself working as part of the government. You're a civil servant. How did this these opportunities come around? Tell me that kind of that narrative. Um, do you know what? Actually, I worked at McDonald's when I was 16. I had my first government job at 18, so it wasn't very long between the two. But I think one of the things that I learned at McDonald's is how to treat people and how not to treat people. I think that people forget, like I think it was mainly customers forget that a lot of people that are in McDonald's are either, you know, um, students, are people in difficult positions. They are like, they're people that just want a job basically. And they forget that they're, they are human um, and assume that because they're in a fast food restaurant that they're, they're stupid or whatever. And actually I know that's not the case. Um, but it did, it taught me a lot how to treat people that I work with, how to employees, how employers shouldn't treat people because I saw firsthand how it was making people feel like really poor level management. Um, and generally about what good culture can do in terms of like KPIs and how well you can succeed as a business. Um, you know, I, I ended up being a manager at co-op, which was my second job after and then I took what I learned and like just basically taught, like made everyone feel human. And I do that now when I go to job interviews and I sit there and they're like, what? I was like, well, I can't tell you what I can do with this job. I can humanize the role you've given me on a piece of paper. I think there's one thing that 
I'm really good at and it's managing expectations of people and managing people and that's why I've always been successful in my career and I do take that from learning while working at McDonald's yeah that's a really good point of just um making sure that that somebody just doesn't feel intimidated by managerial roles as well uh, and management I think that's something that's really important um but the what yeah the way you talk about it absolutely I completely agree now going into that role at 18 was that a lead that was that a leadership position then uh, no it wasn't so I was probably mid-management level I okay. didn't have any particular line management experience until maybe two three years into my career so something I wanted to ask you is your experiences with discrimination in the workplace and if you had any notable instances where that occurred yeah I actually do think it happened as an apprentice so I joined the, the government as an apprentice age 18 um I do feel like I mean it wasn't specifically like racism or sexism but I do remember feeling like my age was being taken into consideration a lot mm. um and I do think because of my appearance like I was just one of those because I was 18, I wanted to make a really good impression. I was one of those girls that I'd made sure I'd got up every morning, did my hair, did my makeup, because I wanted to impress people I was working with. And I cared so much about what I looked like just as much as my job. I think that maybe some of the people that I worked to didn't like that. And I remember one particular woman, um, she just didn't take well to me. She would make digs at my parents. She would make digs at my age consistently. And I remember times in my apprenticeship where I wanted to quit because of how this one person was making me feel. And, um, you know, I felt like I was nobody and I felt like I was useless, but I had to keep reminding myself, you know, 6,500 people applied for these jobs and only 600 people got them. And I got here for a reason and it wasn't because of the makeup I was wearing. So I just had to bite the bullet and deal with it for two years. And it wasn't until people started to notice her behaviour around me that it wasn't, I wasn't the only person she did it to. So I, I don't know what it is about that person um, because the other person that it happened to was substantially older than me, um, didn't look like me. So, um, yeah, it, I just don't know. I think it was one of those things I had to overcome and I, it does take a, a type of person to be able to deal with that. And I look back at it, I should never have had to. I should never have sat there in silence and just took the backhanded comments that she was making to me. Well, this is a really important thing to talk about, actually, because in the workplace, I feel like a lot of people are very reluctant and scared to speak to someone in the senior about how they're feeling or being made to feel by somebody else. How, what would you say about that then? Because I feel like there's not a comfortable atmosphere for that to happen. Maybe it's actually from the self of the apprehension, the anxieties uh, that might the be the what ifs what happens because of naturally as a human we'll think of the worst that's going to happen when actually it's probably never going to be that severe so what what can we do to combat that i do i feel like in it should be more that the employees give employees safe spaces to talk about their feelings i do find that actually when people started to set up forums and and like reward and recognition schemes and all these things that you could actually see people's like if you feel appreciated, you'll work harder than your salary allows you to. Like every time I felt appreciated, I'd definitely gone on above and beyond. So it was little things like that. But um, what I is the safe like, space then? I mean, I, is it giving an again, opportunity each week or each month or um, allowing check-in times? Or I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just wondering what your opinion is. 
Yeah, I think for me, when I took on management position, I my me my idea of creating a safe space was like taking lead. So like if I if I felt like I needed a mental health day, I would tell my team that, um, or I would I would lead by example. Like if I need a break, I said I need five minutes. Or like, you know, I'm having a bad day. I would talk to people that I managed about it because then they feel like if I can do that to them, then they can easily confide in me and do the same thing. Like I've never had any issues where someone I've managed has come to me and said, look, look, I need a mental health day. Because if I've done it, they feel like they can do the same thing. So I think it is leadership working downwards and taking a lead by example and not just saying, oh, we're doing this and then never doing it themselves. I I actually find it very... um, it's very common in British culture, I think, that whole stiff upper lip where we don't, yeah, we don't take our own advice. Um, mm-hmm. So that was my idea of creating a safe space. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that I'm really keen to show to anybody by this platform is that vulnerability is a strength. And actually, it's very normal as well to show that vulnerability, because if you denormalize it altogether, how how does anyone you know any innocent individual go about their lives when they know full well that you will on every now and then you know brad pitt probably does every now and then he'll have a terrible day but all every everyone does and it's just part of normal life so we can't take that away yeah no definitely i agree and i think you know it was probably one of the bits that i i found more successful in my time managing teams because it felt like people could come to me like, but people who i didn't even manage felt like they could come to me about problems and it meant things got resolved a lot quicker um and I had a happy team and it meant that having a happy team meant that my life my actual job was a lot easier so there came a point in your life then where that was going to be put behind you well not necessarily put behind you you never never say never but what was the timing then in your life because you were in management position Mm -hmm. and you were it's fair to say you're in a great job and you were still young you were 24, 25. Yeah. Then you applied for Love Island, I suppose, or were you um, scouted? I, I applied. So you applied yeah, for it. So, so you consciously wanted to go on the, uh, on the show. So what was the, what was the motivation and thought process at yourself? Was it a, a single motivation or were there a variety of factors? Um, do you know what? I feel like there was, I want to say there was a variety of factors in a sense that my friends and I always made jokes about me applying for the show because I was the only single friend and they were all living vicariously through me with all of my weird escapades in terms of modern dating. Um, but <laughs> I feel, I, I did see something on Instagram earlier and I feel like it's definitely, it re- realized, it became a realization to me. That's why I applied for Love Island. It, and it was that I'd spent so much of my life, young life working. How do I press undo? Um, and it's like, how do like, it gets to a point where you get responsibilities and going off and doing something as crazy as Love Island or just taking yourself off for traveling becomes impossible. Like when you get to the age where you have a mortgage and you have kids and all of that stuff, you can't do those things anymore. And I was like, well, I don't want to get to 30, 40. And I've never, like, I never went on a girl's holiday when I was younger. I never did the whole gap because I didn't go to uni. I didn't do gap years. I didn't go traveling. So I'd missed out on those rites of passage. And COVID made me have that massive realisation that, you know, had I died when I caught COVID, I would have done nothing in my 20s but work um, and have no exciting stories to tell people. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty bleak way to look at it, but I just wanted to do something that was different, um, something that was fun, that would kind of make me feel like I was in my early 20s again. Um, 
I mean, it's a very extreme way to go about it, but I mean, it definitely works. No, I completely agree. I feel, I feel actually that that kind of attitude is quite overlooked now because everyone expects the best job, expects the best salary. And to get there, you have to work constantly and nothing's given to you anymore because the life is so competitive when actually we're only put here once and actually you're here to just have a good time. Not, not, yeah, not, as, not, as, not as broad as that, but do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> ultimately, money's a construct. Time is a construct. But we all know that we're only here once, so you might as well make the most of it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's all about balance. You know, I'd, everyone thinks that when they'd be in an exposition with an X amount of salary, they'd be happy. Well, I got there before I was 30 and I wasn't. So, you know, that says a lot about what people's perception of money and salary and position is when actually it's not it's not all it is cracked up to be and I, I you know I just I wanted to do something different and yeah <laughs> here I am did you have any apprehension before going on so let's say you've got the got got it did you have any apprehension of course I did I think you know um my parents don't watch reality tv had no idea what love island was and um, and culturally you know like I, I think it's quite well known that I don't ha- I have quite um, a mixed heritage so having both foreign parents like how well were they going to perceive that I was leaving my job regardless of how temporary it is to go on reality tv um was scary whether it would impact future prospects if I wanted to return back to my job um how people would perceive me I'm not in control of what gets shown um and do you know what I think my job made me more conscious about what I was doing mm. and how I was being perceived just because it was part of my job to look at the bigger picture before I act. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was lots of apprehension, but then again, I had this thing in my head that was like, do you know what? How many people replied to the show? How many people have been offered this opportunity? Um, and this opportunity will never come by again. If I change my mind after this series is gone, will the show still be there next year? Will I be offered to go back on the show next year? Probably not. So it's now or it's never. Since the show has gone through, since, since it was kind of started through to the last series as well, this is more of a broad question because obviously I know your motivations for doing so, but do you think other people's motivations for applying for the show are actually in the wrong place? Um, I, I don't think so at all. I think, you know, whatever um, reasons you have for going on the show, I don't think it's a bad thing or it's negative like if you wanted to go on there because you wanted whatever brand deal um or you wanted to become whatever like i think it's a really good way to go about it where i do find it to be quite negative is that because it is a dating show if somebody goes on there for the sole intentions of potentially meeting someone and they couple up with somebody who has a very different intention you could be your feelings could be very much led along for I know it's only eight weeks, but eight weeks when you live with someone 24 hours mm. a day and you have no other escape is a very long time. Um, I feel like that's the only negative about it. Well, actually, it's one of the negatives about it. I think the other negative is that you're not guaranteed to leave famous, you're not guaranteed to leave with X amount of followers, you're not guaranteed to leave with X deals. So if you put all your eggs in one basket, I also think that's a massive negative because you're not guaranteed any of these things. Absolutely. Now, was the show what you expected it to be? Did it live up to expectations? Um, I mean, it was very interesting to learn the tricks of the trade. Oh, really? Um, and how they do how they do things. And for anyone that thinks that you just sit there in a lovely villa for eight weeks and sunbathe, you are massively confused because it is a lot harder 
and a lot more stressful than people think it is. Um, the producer's quite TV, hands-on then? Um, I would say in terms of providing guidance, I'd say yes. Um, you, you do get a lot, a lot of guidance and a lot of help with, because they're trying to construct, construct a storyline at the end of the day, mm. right? Um, they've already started with what they've been given and they're trying to work it out and they're trying to use your whatever their character they've made you into be to make a storyline to keep it entertaining. So there is that that sense of guidance, but um it's it's it was fun. Like it definitely lived up to my expectations of making me like act like I was in my twenties as opposed to acting like I was in my fifties. <laughs> <laughs> um I've gotta ask you, do you think that it's time for the opportunity for a more diverse uh, cast in the sense of same-sex relationships and opening the door in a variety of ways like that? Um, yeah, 100%. You know, I, I remember speaking on interviews and other podcasts where I said that, you know, one of the reasons why I really thought about going on there in the first place, I thought more about how me going on there would increase representation than mm. what brand deals I could get out of it. You know, going on as a Asian bisexual woman from a mixed heritage, how many people do I represent going on that show that probably haven't been like, don't look at reality TV and feel they're represented anymore. Um, I do think, you know, even if they don't think it will work in terms of the structure now, a queer love Island, of any way, shape or form, I think it's very much time to have one. Um, yeah, like, I think it'd be more entertaining, if anything. Oh, I can um, only imagine, I reckon it would be. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I, I, yeah. Like, not only would you increase representation, you'd also increase, um, you know, entertainment value. But I think, for me, that I do, I, I don't think they've necessarily tried as hard as they can, but I can see, like, this series that they have tried to increase representation. Obviously, this year had a lot more Asian contestants than previous series. But um, I did say in another interview that if you, it's all well and good increasing representation, but if nobody is attracted to that diversity you've put in, then you've defeated the purpose of the diversity. Mm. No, so it's sense. all, yeah. Like if you put, if you put like a select, like a different race of guys in, but all the girls only fancy one type of race, it's just a bit, it, it defeats the objective. So I feel like the diversity in a whole needs to be like, it doesn't need to just be characteristics. It needs to be relationships as well. Like how people find relationships. Different dynamics as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that would also make the show more interesting because I remember sitting there being like, well, I don't fancy any of these boys. Um, Like none of them are for me. And I remember telling a producer, like, if you want me to fight for a boy, you need to give me a boy worth fighting for. Um, Because in real life, I would never date any, any of them, <laughs> like it sounds bad, and like it's weird because one of the trolling things I got was that oh nobody fancied you, but it's like well hang on, what if I didn't fancy them? And you went not 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 worried actually. <laughs> yeah, I like when when they there was this whole storyline that apparently I smiled when I thought Danny was going to pick me, and actually Danny is a hundred percent not my type, and I would happily have left that villa than couple up with him. So yeah, for like me, I was just like oh okay, like it, uh, yeah, it felt like I defeated it defeated the point of me being there. If yeah, nobody sure. fancies girls that are Asian or like me at all. So this is something that I'm really keen to talk to you about after a couple of years after. So I spoke to Dr. Alex when he came out of the villa. And then I spoke to Laura Crane as well about it. And I'm interested to talk to you as a more recent contestant and with more recent developments on the support on leaving the villa. 
And I wanted to know what was put in place by the production company and indeed ITV for your support and mental well-being upon leaving the villa and how long that subsequently lasted and if it's ongoing or that's kind of it. Um, I do feel like that the welfare um, provided to you, I mean, to provide it to us this series has been really substantial. Obviously, um, we've unfortunately lost more people since some of the other series, like we recently lost Caroline Flack, which was um, really hard. And I think I hit ITV production really hard as well. Um, so, you know, I, don't, I can't speak for other contestants in previous series, but even going through the process to get onto the show was pretty brutal in terms of mental health screenings. Mm. Um, you had therapy before you even went on the show. Um, there, was an, there was a therapist in Mallorca. I mean, we couldn't see them because obviously it was a, COVID-free zone. They were available on Zoom, but they were in Mallorca if we needed them. There was welfare out on the outskirts of the villa. Um, and, you know, even physically, like I remember in the villa, like I was cutting a mango for Toby and I'd accidentally like nipped myself. And but obviously I forget that I'm wearing this microphone 24-7 and I had about 17 classes delivered to me. But all I did was nip my finger. So, you know, I feel like they were paying a lot of attention to you while you were in there. Mm. Um, in terms of leaving, you know, I, I've heard Molly and Tommy make jokes about it, but I feel like it too. They phone you so much. Oh, really? I have had nonstop contact with welfare, um, not in a negative way. Like they are on Just it. Just like checkups. Yeah, like you know, even having weird conversations. I remember speaking to them about Winter Wonderland, like about all these random things. And you can, it's like speaking to a friend. Like I would text them, like I would text my mate. Um, in terms of like actual physical, like CBT. I mean, I had a CBT session this morning. So for me, like. Um, therapy and all that stuff is still very much ongoing and I feel like I mean you're given an x amount of sessions when you leave the villa but if you want more it's done to, at the discretion of you and the production team okay so that if it sounds like there's a lot in place for like a, a, the, enough support to be there for nothing to go wrong so to say um okay but that's really yeah. important I know, I know i know you know what i you know what i'm trying to say there it's just important to have that support and it sounds like that they're checking up on you in more ways than one which is important. And I imagine as well that you kind of, depending on the series, rally around each other as well. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, despite whatever's happened in whatever series and anything like people come out and, you know, you're not always going to be friends with everyone, but if any of the Islanders from whatever series, especially, you know, the ones that I've lived with, messaged me and phoned me and reached out to me and said, they, look, they've got a problem. Mm. I would always be there to listen, regardless of what our relationship was or is. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's one of those things that I've loved about Islanders since I left is that because this is a very unique experience and not everyone gets to understand, you're in the same boat and everyone is always helpful, regardless of whether you actually like each other or not. Mm, absolutely. So in, in another breath, then something that comes with Love Island, as we all know, it's it, to a varied degree for any individual that goes on the show is the fame and that side of it, and the catapult into the spotlight. So let's talk about that with you. Before you went in, would you say you were a quite a stable individual? Like mentally? Yeah, definitely. So, and so when you came out of the villa, um, you had thousands, hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers. Was that overwhelming for you, Eve, despite being mentally strong? Um, I think it was weird at first. I 
this series were like we were in a unique situation that when I came out I had to quarantine mm. um I think a lot of people when they leave the villa they fly back to UK and then they live life so they're like instantly catapulted into like people whereas I was catapulted into my phone because I lived on my own yeah I had sure. five days of nothing but my phone I mean when you first look at it I left of 200 and something thousand followers I looked and I was like oh it's not that much it's fine when you think about it, if I stood in a room of 200 and something thousand people, I'd be like, bloody hell, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so it's weird at first. I didn't pay any mind and any attention, but the five days where I sat there and I had nothing but my phone, it started to like, I think it breaks you down a little bit. You become like easily susceptible to reading everything you've been sent or reading everyone's comments or reading opinions about you. Um, so like it's being outside in the real world for the first time is very different to being in your phone. So I think that's where um, maybe I found it harder than some of the other individuals that would have left pre-COVID. How's social media impacted your kind of day-to-day life then? And are you also in tune with what you do and don't read? I imagine you've learned over since leaving that it's probably better on what you know you can manage and can't manage. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I feel like I've spent more time on social, obviously jobs change and things. I definitely spend more time on social media um, than I normally would. I definitely, in terms of comments and things, I mean, I know not to read anything that comes out of the sun. Um, I learned that the hard way. It's not ever, I don't think I've ever read a pleasant story about any of the islanders from the sun. Um, that's really hard to say. I know that if I get sent a link from an article from the Daily Mail, it's going to be something about my body. So I just don't read that and definitely never read a comment from a Daily Mail reader, ever. Oh, my dad's brutal. retired. Yeah, my dad's retired. So he has nothing better to do but troll trolls. Um, <laughs> so he once like, told me, like he told me about a comment. I said, like, don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. I deliberately don't read it. He was like, oh, well, um, a troll had commented on it, on a quite a transphobic comment on an article about me. Um, my dad was like, well, ironically, the idiot left his address on the comment what <laughs> so like it was like normally it'd be like dawn from kent but this person had like had their name and a specific street in the northwest impressive <laughs> impressive so level like, of incompetency that yeah definitely so if i was one of those people that i'd read those things i could easily go find them i mean i never will because i'm no, 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 their no. level but um yeah it's you definitely uh, i definitely learned the hard way to read less sure um and I'm is there anything more specific tune. that you, you can recall? Um, I mean, I remember the son writing an article about me, called me a catfish. Um, and, you know, they were claiming that I'd over-edited my photo. And actually, in reality, the lighting was different because I was in a dark restaurant. I'd had professional hair and makeup. And I wasn't the one that took the photo. So to claim that I was overly edited and don't look like me or or I'm a catfish because I don't look how I looked in the villa when actually you forget that Stop photos it. and things Stop are... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a dog, so I completely understand. Um, photos and things, like, when someone takes photo on social media, it's posed. Like, I always get my best angle. On TV, I'm never going to get my best angle. Also, heat, like, all of those random things, I'm never going to look how I look on TV. People have seen me in real life don't even know that I look like I look on TV. Um, so yeah, I think the turning point and where I learned that I should no longer read everything that comes out about me. Mm. And I got into a dangerous habit of when I first left the villa of Googling myself. And that's dangerous. That's a dangerous path to go down. Can I, can I ask you, 
Oh, I can obviously understand the, the, the core reason why, but what was the what were you kind of seeking to see? Because you were doing it probably for a reason just to see something, but did you know what you wanted to see? I mean, I started doing loads of really amazing things. So, um, you know, I wrote an article for Grazia about trolling. I yeah. did one about spiking. So I, I was hoping that there'd be more traction about the things that were really important to me, the things that I thought were beneficial to people. So I was hoping that if I typed my name into Google, that all of these things would come at the top, when inevitably they don't. Um, so yeah, I think I was like, I was, I was excited because loads of girls have been messaging me about saying that like, things that I'd written were really helpful to them and it made them feel better. So I was like, oh, you know, I want to see how they found it. And then I met with articles about my body, about my face, about my appearance, about relationships that don't exist and all these things. Um, See, I, th- I feel like I was looking for like some sort of gratification that like I'd of, written of something the hard work that you do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that it's something that I want to talk about. Well, I'll come on to it in a little bit if that's okay. Because I've just because you briefly touched on your family there. So I, I, it sounds like that you've got a real support bubble around you. Just so if you ever have any wobbles or or you know any any kind of issue i feel like you are comfortable leaning on your close family is that fair enough yeah definitely i've definitely got the best circle around me that i could possibly ask for how important is that then when you leave somewhere like love island i I, do you know what i find and i've i feel like a lot of islanders can agree with me when you leave something like that there'll be a lot of people that you don't speak to anymore that try and sell stories on you there'll be people that try and make like I had loads of people that I didn't, I haven't seen since I was 16, 18, make false stories and accusations about me. Um, people that used to say less pleasant things about me before I went on TV, try and become my friend. Yeah. That's see, That's what I can imagine a lot of, a lot of fake friendship, me popping back up into your life and going, Oh my God, that's so cool. Well done. Should we meet up? Yeah, I had so much of that, so much from that from people that used to say horrible things about me that were like hated me for whatever reason. And I like having a close knit circle that you can trust that you had before the show um, is so important to keep when you leave because they will never like they don't see me as Sharon from Love Island. They see me as Sharon, their sister, their daughter, their best friend. Um, and I will never like they're people that I want to keep for the rest of my life. So yeah, I I don't think I could island or get through how difficult it is now without them so we touched on social media as well and i know you're i mean these are a lot of repetitive questions in a way slightly phrased differently that you've most definitely answered in your time before but with social media how how conscious are you of what you post specifically post to post because your audience is young right and yeah of course the uh love island and islanders Instagram followers are young and therefore you are of course incredibly influential to these people are you conscious of what you do and don't post in order in what kind of to show the your followers yeah of course I am like I I feel like I'd be very uh, hypocritical if I didn't because so I'm very open about a lot of things I've been very open about cosmetic procedures and things like that because I Mm -hmm. don't want people to look at me like and think well I mean I haven't had a lot of work done contrary to popular belief but I don't, I still don't want to lie about it because I remember when one of the Jenna sisters started to have work done and she claimed it was completely natural. It was a result of the pill. And all of these younger girls, including myself, were sitting there thinking, well, why don't I look like that? Why didn't the pill make me look like this? Mm. So if I'm completely open and transparent with it, then no it's one else feel the same It's a realistic version. And yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a catch-22 because I don't want to be seen like I'm encouraging whatever. 
to young girls. And I'm very open and honest about the negatives and the downsides of whatever you decide to do as well. Um, but I post a lot of filter-free photos, a lot of photos of me with no makeup, um, even if it makes the sun write articles and call me a catfish, like whatever. Like obviously I do look different with, with and without makeup, but um like I post a lot of like for me educational stuff. I talk a lot about um, you know, women and careers. Um I started a blog to write about like politics and things like imposter syndrome and loads of things that questions that people have actually asked me about that I think can be beneficial. Um and at the moment I'm doing a lot about, you know, things that are really important, things I want to change. So I don't want it to, I don't want my Instagram or me as a person to just be about pretty pictures. And equally, I've turned down a lot of paid jobs because I don't see them to fit my brand. So I could sit here and make a lot of money and sell all kinds of rubbish to all kinds of young girls. But equally, that's very off-brand for me and I'm not interested. Yeah, sure. It's kind of against your own moral integrity. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I didn't go on the show to make money. So why would I all of a sudden change my mind now that I've left the show? Um, so yeah, for me, I'm very conscious about what I'm posting. And I, if I'm unsure about something, I will speak to someone about it first. Well, I have no doubt. And as you are already proving, there is ways to make money ethically and appropriately. Yeah, definitely. And if you, if you do something that sticks to your moral standards, like my, I have people tell me this a lot of the time because I'm, I was like, well, if I post more, like when I post a pretty picture, I get more followers, I get more engagement than when I post something that's really substantial. But then, you know, my team always remind me, well, if you post that substantial stuff, you'll have a bigger career in the long run. So that longevity. Um, and like, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So all of these people that get high engagement now, when all the pretty pictures runs out and they've done all the brand deals, what do they do then? Mm. You're a businesswoman, that's what. <laughs> I'd like to think so, but my dad would laugh if he heard you say that. <laughs> well, if he's got so much time, he can be the, one of the first listeners then. <laughs> um, so I, I obviously in preparation for this, I've done, I've had a look at all the work and amazing work that you do. And I want to talk to you about the Young Woman's Trust. And I want to talk about the specific work that you do. So I want to give you a chance to kind of tell me and educate me on the important work that they do. Yeah, I mean, the Young Women's Trust is obviously um, a female organisation that focuses on the economic empowerment of young women. Um, It kind of divides itself into four sections and it mainly focuses on women that are carers, um, ensuring that women that, you know, I think it's fair game that apprentices earn, like it's not fair game, it's well known that apprentices earn a lot less money, but most of the time now apprentices tend to be older with the same responsibilities as somebody who's not an apprentice. So it's about finding like um, ways for equal salary to take women out of this horrible circle you find yourself in once you fall into kind of like the welfare trap. Um, and also it focuses on like, um, they have a program called Work It Out where they do a lot of CV and um, empowerment workshops to help women get back into work, especially young mothers. So um, in terms of work that I did, um, Actually, they found me as a result of beauty pageants. I'd come back um, from Japan after spending five weeks in Japan um, as Miss International UK. Um, I was already a sponsor of the charity, so I donated, I think it was £5 every month to the organisation. Obviously, the social media team had gone through people that donate and found me on there. Um, When I came back from Japan, I was an ambassador for violence against women in Japan, ending violence against women. Um, 
and obviously having a career in government like I found all these people looking at my LinkedIn I was like what is going on but um <laughs> so yeah it kind of started up there as an ambassadorship role kind of like sharing stuff helping them with their campaigns I remember one International Women's Day they did um a calculator to work out how much unpaid work women contribute to the economy every year and they went to parliament square and they held up big signs um in front of the house of parliament and had loads of fake money and all these things but to me now it's about trying to figure out what my platform can do for them now how i can benefit them in an ambassador ambassadorship role and i feel like the drive for me is very much focusing on i mean i was once a young carer but for me it's now focusing on apprenticeships i find that schools focus more on pushing people into university when I don't think it's beneficial to them in the long term um and I'm one of those people I'm very much evidence that that's factual um so yeah I want to in the long term help young women get back to work find something they want to do but also help them earn while they're learning um and help create a better future for a lot of young women it's it's amazing and so in that same breath then maybe you're not even allowed to talk about it, but where do you envision that going as you as a brand, but in what you can help do? Yeah, I think for me, like I actually want to take on a full-time role um, within a female organisation, um, whether that's being on the board of trustees and helping them guide them through their social media usage and their social media platforms and how to outreach with their influencers. Because Young Women's Trust do have an influencer programme, but I feel like there is ways where we can strengthen that. Um, and like you know I, I did say to them one day that I can see myself being their CEO so you know loads of people have had trolling comments where people are like you just want to be Molly May and it's like yeah well she wants to be CEO of Pretty Little Thing I want to be CEO of the Young Women's Trust it's very different so yeah one day I feel like that's my long-term goal to be like a CEO of a female organization that's a, oh, I think that's a really good goal to have I mean yeah and as you say completely different and a stark contrast <laughs> to Pretty Little Thing yeah, um, there's no, and there's a number of, number of things that you've obviously been outspoken on. And I've, I've read that, I remember when they came out as well, but when you were spiked, because uh, yes. that's difficult to read because I've got a younger sister who is now living in London. And if I found that out about her, I would, you know, that would, I would, I don't know how I'd react to be honest with you. But I mean, I didn't know where to begin on this kind of conversation First of all, let's talk about you and your emotions thereafter, because has it affected your experiences mentally in the long term? I, I mean, do you know what? I feel like it hasn't only because it's not the first time it happened to me. Um, I can probably say on five, six occasions I've been spiked in my adult life. And, um, you know, there were times where I, yeah, I feel like you blame yourself first. What could I have done to stop this happening to me? Um, what did I do to make myself a victim of this? And I feel like a lot of young women that I've spoken to and that have reached out to me also have the same fear where they're like, what did I, what did I do to make this happen? Um, but that's the reason why I wanted to write this article. That's why the reasons why I wanted to get involved with the girls that in boycott and all of the campaigns going around and wanting to reach out to parliamentarians and the Home Affairs Committee because it, there's nothing I did do. I didn't do anything because I lived my life and it was somebody else's decision to do that to me. So, um, you know, I do remember feeling anxiety, feeling low, feeling ashamed, embarrassed, um, you know, because I felt like I wasn't believed by a lot of the um, establishments that are put up to protect people. Mm. Um, and I do feel like there's a lot of victim shaming and I want to stop that. And I want young girls, I want young girls and other victims to be able to come forward and say this happened to them without feeling shame. 
So, you know, and I find that, you know, it's weird to me to know that a Love Islanders have a lot of influence on young people. So, like, knowing that I'm now doing something to help people like your younger sister in the long terms is is amazing to me. So I'm I'm just keeping that in mind when I think about how I feel when things like that have happened to me in the past. Mm. I mean, it's just, I feel like it's it's an ever-evolving um conversation in that regard but also the way in which it's now conducted i mean the fact that needles were being brought up and the fact that that's even a thing because for someone like you who's just said that it's happened five or six times that it's, it's probably changed your habits to an extent on a night out going should i actually now be doing that or should i cover my drink um and now i don't know and they, if there, there are now needles involved <laughs> what do you do literally yeah i don't think there is a way to protect yourself from needles like, i was spiked for my drink so I don't, I can't even comprehend what it'd be like. But obviously with needles, there's other worries involved. Like, is the needle clean? Um, like, has it been used before? All of these things um, that young girls have to face when they're being spiked. Um, but it's also, it's, that's what I want to speak to parliamentarians about. Because when I was 18, I couldn't even get into a nightclub with chewing gum. So how are people managing to get through the door with needles in their pockets? Mm. Like, I, it's something I don't understand. And then it's also the the weird conversations online like since i posted since i did that article mm. um and like you know i've reacted and stitched tiktoks of police officers arresting people for suspicion of spiking and things like that and everyone it's weird comments from young young boys young men that are like oh well men get spiked too oh well this happens to men too and i've never said it's just a female only problem but when you substantially when you look at the stats it's substantially women victim, female victims but even with male victims, it's always men that are the perpetrators that are from stats I've seen. So, you know, it's I'm trying to help educate people and change people's opinions. And that's where I also think the government could come in. You know, we have PHSE and whatever, and they teach you about drugs and all of this stuff. But they don't teach you about safe sex, spiking, all of these other things that are just as important to life as what the effects of ketamine can do to you. Oh, yeah, do you know what? I was th- talking about that to somebody the, the other day in the sense that I was not prepared. And this kind of does a full swing around to like <laughs> adult life. I was not prepared for anything like how to pay my taxes. No idea. How to pay my car insurance. Don't know. You just get on with it. And I'm surprised that that's not like a module or like something that you do when you're leaving school. I don't know. I just thought that'd be quite an important thing. Just life lessons and a variety of ones, like exactly where it might not seem relevant to you at the time, but spiking, you should know about it. And you need to know what the key, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not educated enough in, in, in the matter to talk about it, but what the signs to look for on various things. So I feel like, I don't know about you. What did you feel at school? Um, I mean, do you know what, actually, I think, this is probably why I feel like I did quite well in my career, like despite not being the massive ASAR student that people think I am um, or think I was, is because my dad taught me those life skills. And I was like, well, this isn't going to help me. And my dad was like, trust me, when you get older, this will help you. Like my dad taught me how to like, how to do taxes. He would make me do all his tax returns, like put all his things into spreadsheet. And I was like, I don't understand why I'm doing this. This is a weird way to earn pocket money. And he's like, no, in the future, like, you'll understand so now I know how to do these things yeah and I was at the time I was thinking you're a crazy old man but um (laughs) but like he used to do things like that or like when I was younger he'd teach me how to fill up petrol in his car and then when I learned to drive like it was my friends would phone me and they were like Tesco's petrol pump be like I don't have petrol in my car can you come show me and I'm like what on earth like how do you not know how to do that but it's because 
who teaches you all of these things? And I do find that there are a lot of things I feel like I learned in school that are just not not appropriate to real life. Um, and I do find that maybe that's where the education system does fail a lot of people and a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably agree in, in some capacity to that, 100%. Um, as we wind down, first of all, thank you for joining me. But I have a question that I ask every guest that comes on the show. What does the word headstrong mean to you? The word headstrong means to me is knowing yourself, knowing who you are and what you stand for. Because I think if you fully know who you are as a person and what you provide to the world no one can take that away from you and no one can belittle you for that and then you know what purpose you're serving to other people fabulous thank you well thank you so much for joining me on headstrong thank you so much to sharon for joining me on headstrong i really appreciate her giving up her time to have a natter about all things mental health if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast please do subscribe share it with your friends leave a review a rating talking about the podcast really really helps me so it's always great to get the word out there make sure you do hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on another episode of headstrong hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.